Revelation chapter 15. And uh, this is a shorter chapter in the book of uh, Revelation. We've come through some pretty tough chapters. We've still got a few tough chapters to go en route to the final great climax of Revelation from about chapter 19 onwards. Uh, But this morning, chapter 15, we'll read uh, this whole chapter of eight verses. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So, just a quick recap then of where we're up to in this, the narrative of this book. We've come through a section uh, which has really set up a big contrast about chapters 12 through to 14, this great contrast between the, the, the kingdom of God and the, the kingdom of the beast or the kingdom of Rome. And we've seen all these forces of evil the dragon, Satan, the, the beast of the sea, the, the Roman Empire, the beast of the earth, the system of emperor worship, all conspiring against the people of God and the followers of the Lamb. And then we've seen in chapter 14 the Lamb standing on Mount Zion with his followers with him, singing a song of praise to God and to the Lamb. And we've seen the wrath of God and the judgment of God, this is what we talked about last week, being poured out upon those who worship the beast, who worship the empire, or receive its mark, or get, uh, give their allegiance to a system other than God. And this has all really forced a great decision of whose side are you on. That's the point, is which side do you stand on? Are you aligned with the kingdom of God, or are you aligned with the empire of Rome or any other empires that seek to uh, rival God and compete against his glory. And now chapter 15 in Revelation begins a new section, a brand new section that's going to span a few different chapters. And again, it's going to involve images of judgment that are coming down the line. Chapter 16 is particularly gruesome with these bowls of wrath that get poured out, and chapter 15 involves some preparation for that. But at the beginning of chapter 15, these first four verses, we see again another interlude. And if you've tracked with us through the series, these will be familiar to you because several times in the book, often in very dark places, very grim sorts of sections, you have this amazing ray of light that beams out of the book, an interlude that centers around the goodness and the glory and the victory of God. And these interludes are full of hope and they inject encouragement and optimism and confidence into the book, which give us the perseverance to carry on and plow through some of the not so nice sections. And this is another interlude here in these first four verses. 
It revolves around this group of people who are mentioned in verse 2, who are described as the victorious ones, or literally the overcomers, those who have been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. Now, those references will hopefully be familiar to you as well if you've followed through the series. The beast representing, of course, the empire of Rome. The image of the beast probably representing the various images of the Caesars that were everywhere, that were so prevalent in the ancient world, icons and images and symbols of Caesar. And the number of its name. You remember we looked at this back in Revelation 13, the number 666, the number of humanity, the number of man, the number of humanity's failed attempt to reach God, to reach 777. And it's falling short of that standard and in the process showing itself to be idolatrous, showing itself to be uh, aligned to something, someone other than God. So that's the number of its name, that number 666, the failed attempt to be God. So these victorious ones then in chapter 15 are the ones who have been victorious over the empire in some sense. They've been victorious over its propaganda, over its controlling attempts, over its uh, system of control, over its system of emperor worship, these victorious ones are the followers of the Lamb. These victorious ones are men and women who follow Jesus. And uh, hopefully that's you. If, if it is you, if you follow Jesus, then you're in the story. You are one of the victorious ones standing here beside this sea of glass. So the passage really becomes about what it means then to be counted as one of the victorious ones, one of the overcomers. And that word victorious gets a lot of currency among Christians today. Victorious living, victorious Christian living. What does it mean to be victorious? I was in a worship context a few months ago, and we sung a song there. We don't sing it here at Shaw, but, but you might know it. The verse of the song, it was a worship song, goes like this. I'm trading my sorrow. I'm trading my shame. I'm laying it down for the joy of the Lord. I'm trading my sickness. I'm trading my pain. I'm laying it down. For the joy of the Lord. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a good song. It's a catchy song. Uh, but I've got to admit, as I, as I sung these words, I felt a bit uncomfortable. Because I felt like in singing all of this stuff about trading my sorrows and trading my shame and trading my sickness and trading my pain, that it wasn't really true to what was going on in my life. That I, I can't really trade my sorrows. I can't, when I'm going through pain, I can't just trade it. For something else, I can't just exchange it for something else when I'm going through sickness. I can't just trade it. I can't just exchange it. And I felt a bit uncomfortable because it sounded to me like the song was saying that these kinds of experiences of sickness and shame and pain and sorrow are somehow lesser experiences in the Christian life. Less spiritual, less God-honoring, less what God wants, um, less important. We've got to be able to move past those things to this other thing, this other life, this great joy of the Lord. And I just felt myself feeling like it's not really me. I don't feel like that. I don't feel like that kind of overcomer. I don't feel like that kind of victorious Christian a lot of the time because I think behind that song, that's the image that's going on, is this image of the victorious Christian life. Have you heard that language? The victorious Christian life. If you Google that phrase, victorious Christian life, you'll find all kinds of people promising all kinds of things about how you can live a victorious Christian life. There's one guy I found who offers seven essentials of living the victorious Christian life. His name, by the way, is Pastor Nicely. I thought that was classic. 
Uh, there's another guy who offers three principles of victorious Christian living, another guy who's got four keys to victorious Christian life. So you can take your pick seven essentials or three principles or four keys, but everyone's making the same kinds of claims. You do these things, you take these steps, and you will live this victorious Christian life. And often the victorious Christian life is characterized as a life, it seems to me, like having a Superman-type faith where you fend off temptation with ease, where you live this overcoming life, you're resilient, you're bravado, you don't really face too many difficulties, you soar above your problems, and you just constantly have this kind of bulletproof type spirituality. And the problem is, I think very few people have that kind of faith. And because very few Christians have that kind of faith, when they sing songs about having that stuff, they feel worse. We sing songs like, I'm trading my shame but we've already feel shame and now we feel more ashamed because we're not supposed to be feeling shame. And it just gets worse, the whole thing snowballs. And I wonder whether some of the images that we are using of what it means to live a victorious Christian life are a bit misguided. And whether there's a better vision, a more biblical vision of victorious Christian living. And that's really what this chapter centers on, is what does it mean to be victorious, really? Who are the real victors here? This scene in chapter 15 is is all modeled so eloquently on another scene from much earlier in the biblical story, in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 15. I won't read it to you, but it'd be great to go back and spend some time in that at some stage. The scene back in Exodus is of the nation of Israel having just come through the Red Sea. God has led them out of Egypt under Moses. He's miraculously parted the waters for them. He's led them on dry land through the sea and now as the last Israelite family steps onto the dry ground at the far side of the Red Sea, God closes over the waters again. Pharaoh and his army are drowned and the Israelites now realize that for the first time, they're free. They're truly free. No longer a slave people. No longer under Pharaoh. They are free and they now pursue a new identity uh, with the God who has led them and saved them. That scene forms the backdrop to this passage in Exodus, uh, Revelation chapter 15. And there's several parallels if you look carefully. Notice in Revelation chapter 2 that the victorious ones are standing beside what looks like a sea. They're standing beside the sea. And I think we're supposed to think here, the Red Sea. Just like the uh, Israelites standing on the far side of the Red Sea, the followers of Jesus are now standing on the far side of the sea as well. Except we're not looking back at the Red Sea, we're looking back at the cross. We're looking back at God's new act of deliverance, his great new exodus that he's brought us on through Jesus. That's his great mighty work of redemption for us. We look back at the cross just as the Israelites look back at the Red Sea and what God had done for them and marveled at this incredible miracle. We do the same for the cross, shouldn't we? Looking back at it and thinking, my goodness, what an extraordinary thing God has done in bringing us from slavery to freedom through the work of Jesus. So they're standing beside the sea and it's a sea of glass. We saw the sea of glass in Revelation 4 around the throne of God, the sea of glass. The glass, I think, represents God bringing order, God bringing calm into chaos, God stilling the waters. It's like he's closed over the waters of the Red Sea behind us and they are calm again. God has brought us out of danger and the waters have returned to calmness. But they're also glowing with fire which is an image of judgment, pretty consistently in Revelation, an image of judgment. And so we get a premonition here that judgment is going to come or that judgment has already happened. 
So standing beside the sea then are all those of us who have been victorious through Jesus, all the victorious ones, and we're holding harps given to us by God. And then in verse 3, look at this. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Isn't that a wonderful bringing together of Old Testament and New? They're singing the song of Moses. That means we're supposed to be thinking of Exodus 15 here, the song of Moses as they've come through the Red Sea. But it's also now the song of the Lamb because we've been redeemed by Jesus. We're at this new point in the biblical story, but a wonderful fusing of Exodus 15 and Revelation 15. It's now the song, and what they sing, what we sing, is a recapitulated form of, of uh, Exodus 15, the song of Moses, the song that Moses and Miriam sing on the far shores of the Red Sea. Now we sing it as followers of the Lamb. It's a bit like that new song we talked about in Revelation 14, a song of praise, a song of victory. And look at the types of things that we're saying in this song. This is a starting point for thinking about what it means to be victorious. It's not about us. It's about what God has done. Look at it. Great and marvelous are your deeds. Just and true are your ways. Who will not fear you? Bring glory to your name. You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts. Have been revealed. What is this telling us about the victorious Christian life? That it's actually not your victory at all. It's Jesus' victory for you. It's not about you summoning up a Superman faith. It's not about you being all resilient and bravado or trying to muster together some sort of courage that you don't really have. It's about the great victory of Jesus through his dying and rising on your behalf. We're just simply looking back at that like those Israelites. Uh, on the far shore of the Red Sea, saying, my goodness, what an amazing thing. Jesus has won this victory for us. The foundation of your victorious Christian life is the victory that God has already won for you. He's won the victory through the cross. All we're called to do is rest in that victory. Doesn't that take the pressure off? Rest and trust in the victory of Jesus, done and dusted for you. It's liberating the stuff. So that's our victory. It's in Jesus. But as you look a bit closer here at, at the nature of these victorious ones, a little problem starts to emerge. And you might have picked it up if you've tracked through some of the preceding chapters. John here talks about these Christians as being victorious, victorious over the beast, victorious over its image, victorious over the number of its name. But in other parts of Revelation... He describes the situation in almost the opposite way. If you remember back in chapter 13 where the beast first emerged, the beast of Rome, Christians weren't victorious at all. There they were described as going into captivity. There they were described as being killed with the sword. They weren't victorious. The beast was victorious. Go further back to Revelation 11, the two witnesses which represent the witnessing church. There the beast comes up out of the abyss and kills the two witnesses, overpowers and overcomes the church. In fact, the very same word that's used in Revelation 15 for overcomer or victorious is used in Revelation 11 for the beast overcoming. So you feel like there's a contradiction here in Revelation. In some parts, the beast is said to be victorious over the followers of the Lamb. But in Revelation 15, the followers of the Lamb are the victorious ones over the beast. How can this be? How can you hold both of these things together? And this takes us to the heart of what it truly means to be victorious as a Christian. At the heart of the victorious Christian life is a deep paradox that often 
as a Christian, victory is experienced in defeat. Often, not always, but often victory is experienced in defeat. That at the moment when you suffer the greatest defeat in life, that moment can be the greatest victory. At that moment, you may be the most victorious because what God counts as victory, what God considers to be victorious living in your life can look to the rest of the world like absolute and utter defeat. About 100 years after Revelation was written in 203 AD, there was a young woman named Perpetua and she'd become a Christian. She had an infant child and she was pregnant with her second but she'd become a Christian, and she was imprisoned for becoming a Christian, uh, awaiting trial, but still imprisoned in the meantime, along with her female slave, Felicitas. Both women, when they were imprisoned, were pregnant. Her father was a really wealthy Roman aristocrat, and he visited her in prison, tried to persuade her to renounce her faith. said, you know, just, just, just renounce Jesus for the sake of your family, for the sake of your child, for the sake of your unborn child, surely. Just renounce Jesus and get this over and done with. But Perpetua refused to do that. She was put on trial and the judge said, you can be released if you will offer a sacrifice to please the emperor. Just offer a sacrifice and worship of the emperor, you can be released. And again, Perpetua refused. So her and Felicitas were sentenced to death in the Roman arena. And the day came for the two women's death and they marched triumphantly and joyfully from the prison through to the amphitheater, through to the arena. There was a Christian historian who recorded this event. And he says, Perpetua went along with shining countenance and calm step as the beloved of God, as the wife of Christ, putting down everyone's stare by her own intense gaze. As the women were in the middle of the arena, there were wild animals released into the arena and the women were severely mauled and injured by these animals and were then taken off to an executioner to have their throats cut. And the historian records that the two women went to the spot of their own accord And kissing one another, they sealed their martyrdom with the ritual kiss of peace. See, to everybody else sitting in the arena that day, Perpetua's life looked like one of complete and utter defeat. Hopelessness and powerlessness at the hands of Rome, the strong and conquering empire. But in God's eyes, and in the eyes of the kingdom of God, Perpetua was victorious that day. Perpetua was living the victorious Christian life. Because victory, from a Christian perspective, is not about success or failure. It's not about winning or losing. It's not about tragedy or triumph. It is about faithfulness. It is simply about faithfulness. It is about a quiet, humble, trusting, persevering, obedient faithfulness. Despite the storms that are raging in our lives, despite the storms that are raging in our own minds, it is what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. That's victory. It's nothing showy. It's nothing bravado. It's no badge of honor. It's not living the extraordinary Christian life at all. It's often living a very ordinary life, and it's often suffering defeat, but it's not being defeated Because victory comes through a quiet and trusting faithfulness. Staying anchored to God, no matter what's going on in your life. Staying anchored in His grace. Staying centered in His love, no matter what mountains are shaking around you. Staying in that communion with God and resting, resting in the victory that Jesus has already won for you. 
no matter what life is throwing at you, resting in that and trusting in that and taking just one step after one step of faithfulness to God, even when everything in you is screaming against it. That's victory. That's what it is to live the victorious Christian life. Which is why I get a bit troubled with songs like that one I mentioned before. And I know I'm just picking on that one song this morning. But it's not about trading your sorrows for something else. It's not about trading your pain in for for something better, something more spiritual, something superior. It's about experiencing victory in your pain. It's about experiencing victory in the sorrows. It's about living victoriously in the sickness or the shame, or the difficulty, or the struggle, right in the middle of it is where victory comes. At that moment when you feel like you are suffering the greatest defeat, that may be the moment of your greatest victory. Because you look around at those moments and you realize God hasn't gone anywhere. He's right there. He's still with you. He's walking with you. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble. And that's what victory is. Not you summoning the bravado to move on and just pretend like everything's okay, but simple and quiet faithfulness right in the middle of a storm. My grandma died a few years ago, and she, for me, embodies what it means to live a victorious Christian life. She had a hard life in many ways. Her husband left her when dad was just a teenager. She never remarried. She was a very frail woman, as long as I can remember her. Very physically frail and fragile person. Even looking back in old photos, she just looked very, very frail. She had a hard life and and, and a lot of things happened that were very difficult for her. But she hung in there with her faith. She persevered in a a quiet and simple and loving and trusting relationship with Jesus. And uh, a year or two before her death, she was moved into a rest home and I went and visited her fairly regularly, not as regularly as I should have, but went and visited her often on a a Monday. And I remember sometimes we'd, we'd talk a bit about heaven, we'd talk a bit about the life that was to come for those who love Jesus and And I remember sometimes we'd talk about that hope and that promise of eternal life and she'd say, I wonder what it's going to be like. I wonder what it's going to be. With that almost like a childish excitement in her voice. I think she lived the victorious Christian life a lot better than a lot of people I know. It wasn't anything extraordinary. It wasn't anything bravado. It was quiet and simple faithfulness. It was just clinging to the cross in the midst of all that life brought against her. And I have no doubt that she is now counted among the victorious ones in Revelation 15. Victorious Christian living can look very, very ordinary, can't it? Very quiet, very unassuming. But that's the paradox of victory. Paul comes at it, the Apostle Paul comes at it from another angle in Romans 8. says very, very similar things to what John's saying in Revelation, where uh, Paul says in Romans 8, Uh, In verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword, all of these difficulties, and then the answer comes in verse 37. No. Why? In all these things, we are more than conquerors. There's that word again. We're more than conquerors. We're overcomers. We're victorious. See, we use that rhetoric in such a triumphalist way. But why are we more than conquerors, says Paul? We're more than conquerors in all these things, he says. Not after all these things have gone. Not after the storms pass. Not on the other side of my grief. Not once my finances get back in better shape. Not once I've finished with this difficult person. But in all these things. In the middle of it. In the middle of your pain this morning. In the middle of your anguish. In the middle of the battle you're going through. In that stuff. Right in the middle of it. You're more than a conqueror. Not because you've got it all together. Not because you've got a bulletproof faith, 
But because, as Paul says, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're victorious because we cannot be separated from the presence and the love of God. That's why. That's where the victory comes. Satan can do a lot of stuff in your life. He'll throw his worst against you at times. He can, he can rob you of a lot of stuff, but he can't rob you of the presence of God. He can't rob you of the love of God. Remember that in the middle of the storm. Remember that with all the rubbish that you're going through. Satan cannot rob you, rob you of the presence and the love of God. And as long as that's true, as long as God is still with you, then Satan's lost. Because he can't pluck you out of the Father's hand. He cannot steal your faith. He cannot wrestle you away from God. God's not going anywhere. He's right with you. He's right with you. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to forsake you. He's with you. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what's the promise? You are with me. Not that it's going to get all better, but that you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's the presence of God that gives us victory. Nothing in us. It's the presence of God and simply remaining anchored in that. Our model of faithfulness, of course, is the person of Jesus. This is true in Revelation. Jesus describes himself this way in Revelation, in uh, Revelation 3, in those uh, early letters to the churches. Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, in verse 21 of chapter 3, To those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious, and sat down with my father on his throne. What did it mean for Jesus to be victorious? Well, it meant being abandoned by most of his friends, being put on trial for things he didn't do, being flogged and beaten and whipped and scourged and hung on a Roman cross to die. That's what his victory looked like. But in that very act of death, execution, Jesus brought about a profound victory, didn't he? A victory over Satan, a victory over death, a victory over the powers and principalities, a victory over sin, a victory over everything that keeps you back from the presence of God. Jesus won a victory, but he won it through dying. He won it through death. And that is not only the means of our salvation, it is the model of our life, because the victorious Christian life is both death and resurrection. That's the paradox. It's strength in weakness, it's honor in shame, it's wisdom in foolishness, it's power in powerlessness, it's victory in defeat, it's freedom in slavery. Somehow it's both at the same time. So even when we feel that dying, there is resurrection because of the life and the power and the presence of God. And I wish, I really wish that I could promise you that it's going to get better but I can't. I don't know what tomorrow is going to be like. Things might get better for you. They might get worse. There is simply no assurance in the Bible that this side of heaven, this side of the new creation, things are going to necessarily improve. Life is hard and is often marked by suffering. But just look as we wrap up at the incredible promise of reward for those who are victorious. In every single one of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, there is a promise for those who are victorious. This theme of victorious living is a huge theme. In if you do a word search, you'll find time and time again the, the call to be victorious. And just look at the promises that Jesus offers to those who are victorious in these letters. They'll eat from the tree of life. 
They'll not be hurt by the second death. They'll receive the hidden manna. They'll have a white stone with a new name on it, known only to them. They'll receive authority over the nations. They'll receive the morning star. They'll be dressed in white. They'll have their names not blotted out from the book of life. They'll be made pillars in the temple of God. They'll have the names of God written on their forehead. They'll sit on God's throne with Jesus. You can take your pick. All of those rewards, all for the one who is victorious, simply faithful and anchored to the love of God in this life. Those are the rewards, all coming our way in the new creation. But I think maybe the greatest promise of all is right at the end of the book. As Revelation wraps up, there's one final time that the motif of victory emerges in Revelation 21 verse 7. Those who are victorious will inherit, that's the new creation John's been describing, and I will be their God and they will be my children. It's the best promise of all. What is the final and great promise for those who are victorious? It's the presence of God. Not a crown, not a gift, not a thing, not a mansion. It is the presence of God. Isn't that fitting that the final reward of victory is the presence, the fullness of the presence of God, the unrestricted presence of God, the uncontaminated by sin presence of God in the new creation. It's so appropriate because that's what we have now in part. We have victory now in part through the presence of the Spirit. We have the presence of God now in part because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. One day we'll receive full victory and one day we'll be at home fully in the presence of God. That's the hope. That's the promise. That's the motivation to keep on living victoriously in faithfulness, simple and humble faithfulness in the present. That's what should pull our hearts forward, isn't it? So don't feel like you need to sing about trading your sorrows and trading your weakness. I know that song's a good foot tapper, but it's not really about that. It's about that life of quiet faithfulness. And as is so often the case for me, as I prepare these sermons, God works on it in my own heart and in my own life. And I've been going through some stuff in the last couple of weeks that's been a real stress for Anna and I in a totally different sphere of life, nothing to do with the church, but situation to do with a really difficult person and involves money and it's just been messy and it's weighed on me and it's just you know these things eat you up and it's just caused real unsettled a really unsettled heart but uh, God has just led me through this passage as well this chapter and reassured my own heart that to be victorious is not about having it all together I haven't been faithful a lot of the time I've hardly been a model of a bulletproof faith but just staying anchored to the power and the presence of God, just knowing that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Though the mountains shake and the waters surge, God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. That's the promise I've stood on. So I'm living this out as well. I'm preaching to myself this morning as much as I'm preaching to you guys because I need to know it. I need to know what it truly means to be victorious in my life. So let's make this our song. Revelation 15. Not necessarily to literally sing, but to say and to affirm and to believe that great and marvelous are your deeds, not mine. Just and true are your ways. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. May we know these truths deeply, and may the reality, the wonderful reality of the victory that Jesus has already won for us be the foundation for us to live in victorious faithfulness, even in the midst of defeat. Shall we pray? Jesus, we thank you so much that the gospel is death and resurrection and that it is victory sometimes in defeat. I just pray this morning, Lord, for all those who are going through difficult times. I pray for people here who are really battling today, 
who are carrying burdens, who are just struggling. I pray, Jesus, that they would know in the core of their being that though they are beaten down, they are not crushed. Though they are perplexed, they are not in despair. Though they are persecuted, they are not abandoned. Because though they may possess nothing, in you they possess everything. So make your grace known to them afresh. Reassure them of your presence. Free them from any pressure that they feel to try and live some bravado faith and pretend like they've got it all together. Allow them to be real with you and real with one another. Anchor them in your grace and your love and enable them to live out a humble, trusting faithfulness in the midst of that storm, resting in the victory that you've won for us. Thank you that you are so faithful. Thank you even when we're faithless. You are so faithful. You cannot deny yourself. You are so faithful. Thank you for that. Thank you that you are our victory. We claim it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.